Welcome to Tech and Color, a show dedicated to spotlighting diverse stories of leaders in tech and business and their journey in getting to where they are today. I'm Monsi. And I'm Michelle. With us in the Zoom studio today is Sanchali Paul. Sanchali is the founder and CEO of Joro, a platform for collective climate action that is backed by Sequoia and has been profiled in Fast Company, TechCrunch, and more. Joro is a mobile app that assigns a carbon score to users' credit card purchases and then helps them develop a climate action plan to reduce their carbon footprint. Sanchali herself first became interested in fighting climate change as an undergrad studying economics at Princeton when she was a sustainability manager for her dining hall and saw how much energy could be saved by eating a plant-based diet. Sanchali holds an MBA from Harvard Business School and has a prior experience at Tesla and in management consulting and social impact at Dahlberg. Thank you so much for being here with us, Sanchali. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So let's begin with your background. Could you walk us through your upbringing and what interested you in high school and college and how those kind of shape your interests? Absolutely. I grew up in the Boston area. I was always interested in issues of sustainable development. I think especially because my family had immigrated to the U.S. from India and we used to go back every year. And I could see firsthand when I went back a lot of issues of especially access to clean water and energy. Um, But I think a really transformative moment was when I moved to India. Before my senior year in high school, we moved to New Delhi. And so it was no longer something that I was observing occasionally, but I was living around every day. Um, And I got really interested. I I started learning about solar cookers, um, solar cookers and solar water filtration systems. And it seemed to me that here were these incredible products that were very cheap, used technology we already had, and could help create real improvements for economic development, health, and environment. Um, So I started getting really interested in where are their low-hanging fruit? Where are their solutions we already have that can make a big difference for a lot of people's lives and how do we scale those up? And that really informed going into college and thinking about ultimately becoming an economics major and thinking about how can we use markets and technology to scale up solutions that have a big uh, impact in many people's lives. So that brought me to my first work experience working at Dahlberg, which is a strategy consulting firm focused on social impact. And there I really learned how to apply a business lens and analytical lens to new problems and new services, um, but always focusing on issues with social impact. So I worked on economic development issues. I worked in the U.S. and then moved to Bombay with them and then actually moved to Ethiopia to help start their office in Addis Ababa. And climate change and sustainability were a part of many things I was interested in, but they weren't the only thing. When I lived in Ethiopia was when I really started thinking about climate in a meaningful way, because no matter what kind of project I was working on, whether it was an agriculture investment project or an infrastructure project or a transportation project, climate change was always relevant. It was either a blocker to economic growth or a consideration and access to clean energy. And I started to really realize that the climate crisis is the defining problem of our generation and it will affect every aspect of our lives and every aspect of society. So that was in about 2016 when I moved back to the U.S. to go to business school. Um, And at business school was where I I started thinking about the idea for Joro, Um, thinking about taking a practice I had in my own life of tracking my carbon footprint and trying to reduce it and thinking about how I could scale that up to many more people. 
thank you so much for that background. And it's amazing to hear about how you kind of combine these two interests in economics and social impact to figure out the best way to make an impact on the communities that you were a part of. Let's dive deeper into this experience with Joro that you started mentioning. So you are now CEO of Joro. Could you maybe first describe what Joro is? Joro helps people take climate action that matters, starting with how they spend money. So everything we buy, everything we consume in our life requires energy to produce, to distribute, and to dispose of. That's part of the reason why it's so difficult to understand how to address the climate crisis because it's a part of so many different parts of our lives. Joro is a tool that helps us understand where those emissions come from. So every purchase we make, we assign a carbon footprint to your purchase when you connect your credit and debit cards into the app. And then we give you a picture of your overall footprint, the relative trade-offs you're making across different categories, and then help you take action to reduce it, whether that's through building new habits, say, in how you eat or how you travel, uh, purchasing offsets, or even just learning more about the crisis and how you can how you can do your part. Yeah, that's a really great description of Joro. Thank you for sharing that. So you first had the idea for a clean energy startup in general, which was the initial idea of Loop when you were a student at Harvard Business School. Could you tell us a bit about how that led to you founding Joro and how that led to you meeting your co-founders? Yes, as you guys touched on, the first time I started thinking about the relationship between my own choices and the sort of larger systemic issue of the climate crisis was when I was in a senior in college and I saw the documentary Food Inc. And I happened to be the manager of a dining hall at the time. And I was also an economics major taking a sustainable development class. So all of those things were happening at the same time. And I started to think about how can I be more intentional about my choices? If markets in aggregate are many people's demand, if many of us shift our tastes and preferences together, that's how markets change and new products get developed. How can I, as a consumer, be as intentional as possible about the choices I'm making and encourage other people to do the same? In my dining hall, about 200 people, if even five more people are vegetarian, that would be a major impact from an environmental standpoint. That would be like taking several cars off of the road every year. Um, so how could I think about making those changes in my own life and then helping other people do the same? So when I started for the idea of Loop, I was thinking primarily about food choices because it is one of the big areas in our lives that really makes a difference if we change our, our habits. But the more I started working on just food, I started realizing it's not just food. We have four major energy domains. We have food, home, travel, and shopping. And maybe I'm eating a burger, but I'm driving a car. Um, how do I think about a flight versus a new clothing purchase? These sorts of, the idea of having a carbon intuition for our life, the same way we have an intuition for money, um, is really important to being able to make sustainable decisions, good decisions in the long run, many times over and over again. Um, so that was when I first started thinking about the idea for Loop, I was thinking about food. And then the more I started thinking about how do we help people make good decisions, reduce carbon emissions overall that are within our control, and then also influence markets to change. That's when I started thinking more about dollars as the most important unit that we could assign carbon to. Um, and that shaped the initial idea of what is now Joro. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear about how people can use this framework of what their carbon emissions are to make decisions, just like they use how much something costs to make decisions. So uh, I think that insight is something that's really important. It is really, I think it's just really hard to make decisions if you don't have 
understandable metrics. We can make decisions based on time or convenience because we can measure minutes and we have a sense of, you know, how much time we're willing to spend doing different things. We can do it with cost because we understand dollars. Sometimes we can even do it with things like calories or footsteps. Those are kind of newer metrics that we've developed consciousness for and intuition for. Um, and I think we can do it for carbon. It shouldn't, it's not necessarily true that you'll always pick the lowest carbon choice, but at least you know the trade-offs you're making. Mm -hmm. So I guess what was this process of building out Jora once you had this idea and how did you iterate on the product? One specific question that we had was a core aspect of Jora is accessing user credit card information or purchase history. How do you navigate earning consumer trust for them to be able to use the app effectively? In the earliest versions of the app, we actually, we didn't build an app to start with. Um, we talked to a lot of users. We had conversations with probably over a hundred users, just understanding what were their goals? What did they want to be able to do when it came to making sustainable choices that they didn't feel like they were able to do? And we started, and we had different ideas of what the solutions could be. Eventually, when we came to this idea of dollars are the most important um, unit that we can assign a carbon metric to, and that credit card data is the easiest, most automated way to do that. We started building this tool using the Plaid API, uh, which makes it relatively easy to build FinTech applications. So one layer was that I think we were at the right moment in time because we could build on a, a platform like Plaid. The other people have tried to build similar platforms in the past, in the 2000s, early 2000s. And that was really hard because there weren't robust APIs that allowed us to securely and privately access users' credit card data. By using a third-party API that has bank-level security already, we as a startup are able to innovate on top of that without having to sort of win the user's trust independently. So that's one thing that makes it a lot easier is being able to use a bank-level security partner. The other thing is that it is partly a big education issue. So a lot of people don't understand that their spending is related to their environmental impact, and therefore they might be suspicious to share their credit card data with an environmental company because they've never been asked to do that before. But we did find that actually around in December when we announced our funding and we had some press coverage around our product, the press coverage actually explained how the financial data was used and why it was important. And we had much more people connect their cards after reading those articles than people did before that. So we're definitely encouraged by the fact that this is early. A lot of people haven't done this before and there's an educational aspect to earn user trust and then also we have a really a, a big responsibility to take privacy and security really seriously, uh, which we do. Yeah, I think it's really interesting what you mentioned about the combination of a lot of user interviews to establish that it's really important to have access to purchase history and also the educational piece of it that is making people aware that purchase history and what their spending habits are a huge part of their environmental footprint. And this last piece about the Plaid API making it technically possible to build a secure fintech application that consumers can trust. It's really cool how the fusion of all those pieces kind of made this possible. In terms of fundraising, which you mentioned, first, huge congrats on your seed round raised last year. And you mentioned before that the process led you to learn how to frame your story, to learn from investor feedback, and also to emphasize your ideas and your, your pitch as a big opportunity for investors. Could you share some of those lessons that you learned from the fundraising process with us? Fundraising is its own skill set 
to learn. <laughs> I think I feel like nothing can prepare you for fundraising except for fundraising. You can definitely listen to other people's stories. You can do as much research as you want and you should. You absolutely should because I can help you shortcut your process. But there's it's just a new skill that many of us have to learn. For me, I had never raised money before. It was a first time founder essentially. I didn't have that sort of Silicon Valley culture that I was exposed to. As I said, I grew up in Boston. I spent a lot of time abroad and I was coming back after having worked mostly around people who cared about social impact. It was a very different mindset to pitch to people who care most about bottom lines, but also care about bringing new technology into the world. And that was a totally foreign space for me to enter into. I was really lucky because I had a lot of support from people I had met through undergrad and through business school. If you're thinking about starting a company in graduate school or undergrad, is that you have space to sort of play with new ideas and to test things out in a safer space than in the real world. Um, and you're also a little bit removed from the pressures of having a day-to-day -day job. So being able to start something or think about explore starting something, even if you're not serious about it when you're in school is like a really great opportunity. On fundraising in particular, I raised two rounds. The first round I raised was pre-seed. And that was initially supposed to be an angel round, but I didn't know that many angel investors. So I started with the few that I had access to, for instance, one of my professors at business school, and then some people I got introduced to through people I knew at business school. I booked a trip to the West Coast. I tried a little bit on the East Coast first. It was really hard. And then I did a bunch of research. I spent two weeks talking to people and I met a bunch of really amazing investors who ended up taking a chance on us. One of them was our partner at Sequoia, Brian. Um, and I had connected with him after reading an interview he did in the Sequoia newsletter. Overall, the second time I raised was a lot easier than the first. I would say the biggest difference is that I had a much clearer sense of what I was pitching. The first time I had a problem I wanted to solve and I had some ideas of what the solution looked like but I had a lot more unknowns than knowns. The second time I pitched, we had a solution we were building and we had hypotheses we were testing that I could actively share at least what we were learning through that process. So, so that was different. And plus we already had connections that I had built over the previous year. Yeah, thank you. We definitely appreciate that advice on trying to make the most of our time at school to have space to try out new ideas and try starting things. I guess Specifically trying to dive more into your time growing Joro from what you mentioned as its early beginnings while you were in school to now. Can you describe any challenges you've faced in getting Joro off the ground and how you've overcome them? There are so many challenges in starting a new company. Um, I feel like every day you'll encounter some new challenge that you haven't encountered before. But I'll talk about a few of the big ones. The first was definitely on team. Um, I had wanted to find a team to start Joro with when I had the idea for Loop. One of the things I told myself was that I wouldn't start it until I found people I wanted to start it with. Um, I've always loved working on really small teams really closely with other people. And to me, that's one of the amazing things about entrepreneurship is that you get to build a team from really small and you get to work really closely with people who care passionately about the same thing. And so I found a couple people who I was really excited about building Joro with, but in the end, it wasn't the right fit. And I think that happens for a lot of founders. People have different skill sets maybe than you need, or people have different priorities in life that they need to pursue. And starting an early stage company is incredibly hard. It's not for everyone. 
So I think that was one of the biggest challenges is trying to find the right people to work with who share your vision, who are, have the ability to take on the risk. Not everyone does at that stage in their lives and who you can work really, really well with. That's taken me a really long time to find the right people. I'm really lucky now. I, we are a team of seven people full-time um, and several other part-timers. And I love getting up every day and getting to work with them. I also... I mentioned I didn't come from a software background. I'm effectively the product manager for Joro. I had to initially build the product with contractors I worked with, software engineers who I had to work with one-on-one -on -one without really understanding how mobile apps and technologies work. So there's a lot of just like straight up learning that I had to do really fast to figure out how to be basically a technical PM on a really early stage product. And then on the product side, we're trying to build something that doesn't really exist yet. We're building a new category. Behavior change is really hard from a product perspective. A lot of things around engagement, motivation, and, and thinking about what should be in the tool that helps people take climate action that are very difficult. Yeah. One question that comes to mind based on what you were saying is there's this constant balance that you must be having to figure out between trying to focus on the social impact of Joro versus as the CEO and founder trying to have this revenue driven model where you're able to actually make money from what you're doing. How do you balance, I guess, social entrepreneurship where you're trying to make an impact and solve a deep societal issue, but also make money at the same time? I think one of the reasons why we ended up raising money from mostly technology investors was because they have seen models like us before. In consumer software, you're often trying to make a product that users will use or love before you can monetize it. And not every type of investor is willing to do that. Even impact investors are typically very hesitant to invest in models that can't demonstrate profitability from, from a really early stage. But in the tech space, it's really common to build a business that's just phenomenally successful because your users love you and you're achieving some goal for them. And then you figure out how to monetize it afterwards. So that was, I think, a, an interesting learning for me is that venture capital is actually a really good fit for the type of model that we're trying to build because they have similar appetite for risk. I think the way that I, we practice it at Joro is the biggest market opportunity is also the biggest value opportunity for our users. If we can help our users live more sustainably, if we can help them reduce their carbon footprints, if we can help give them products, services, recommendations to do that better, then that's where we're creating value for our users and creating value in the market. So that's how we can align our impact and our revenue opportunities. Yeah, it's interesting how you're able to, like you said, kind of align those two interests together, even though at first glance, they may seem like they're at odds. And we definitely also want to dive into the impact that you're making and the issue of climate change as a whole. How do you envision Joro contributing to fighting climate change, especially from a consumer standpoint and relative to the initiatives of other clean tech ventures? The way we think about it is the climate crisis is a systemic problem. It's not caused by any one person or any one company or any one country. There's a lot of different decisions that have gotten us to this point where we have a huge amount of action to take to, to reduce emissions by 50% in the next 10 years. So we're on track to meet the Paris climate goals. Um, but consumers have a very unique leverage point because we spend money and we spend money together. When we do it together, it's a lot of money. Um, 
we together household consumption influences over 65% of global emissions. So that's a big chunk of the pie uh, that we can influence through our, the choices we make and how we eat, how we power our homes, how we travel and what we buy. People are a catalyst. Companies and governments don't make decisions by themselves. Companies make decisions because of their customers and governments make decisions because at least in democracies because of their citizens. Um, so people have an immense power when we act together to change the systems around us, both through our direct actions and through our indirect impact. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense how it's kind of, like you said, a collective action problem. So we all need to work together, whether it's corporations or whether it's individual consumers to kind of to make our own impact at reducing the harm that we're doing. From your perspective, what do you think is the most actionable lever of change in consumer behavior that matters for the climate crisis? And what are some steps that you think our listeners can take in addition to downloading Joro to reduce their carbon footprint? One of my biggest takeaways from spending time in this space and talking to hundreds of people about what they can do to address the climate crisis through their behaviors is that no two people are the same. I know that's kind of a cop-out answer, but for some people going vegetarian is like super easy. They are, are cutting out meat from their diets. Most days is, is not really a problem. They can cut it down without really noticing for some people that's fundamentally a part of who they are is eating meat. And they just don't, don't feel like they can change that. If you live in a city, maybe it's easy for you, you know, maybe post COVID to switch from driving your car to taking public transport, biking or walking. Uh, but if you live in a place that's not very well connected, your commute might be something completely immutable for you. Even the same person over different periods of time can feel like they can change different things. Maybe in the winter, you really need to drive, but in the summer, you're willing to take that 30 minute bike ride. What Joro tries to do, part of the reason why it's we can't just give everyone a PDF is because we try to meet people where they are. And so there's no perfect climate focused lifestyle that you have to meet. You don't have to be vegan. You don't have to give up your car. For everyone, no matter what your starting point, there's there are things you can do definitely that you're willing to do um, that will also make a big impact. That said, there's certainly some things that are common drivers of our carbon footprints um, and that people should be aware of. People might already know that flying is a really big driver of our carbon footprints. Now, a lot of us haven't flown in a while, which is pretty amazing. So we've probably saved a lot of carbon in the last year. And maybe there are some practices that we've learned in COVID that we can carry forward. Like maybe we don't have to fly for every business trip. Maybe we can do some of them on video conference, or maybe we can try to bundle our trips so that we can go for longer periods of time, go visit our friends in one place and drive to visit them somewhere else on the same trip instead of flying twice across the country. And then there's, for people who drive cars, that's often a really big driver of their carbon footprint as well. So there's some really big things, but there's some things you might be surprised by. Clothing is a larger contributor to global emissions than the airline industry. So there's some things that might surprise you and depending on your consumption habits, um, maybe Jora will help you figure out what those things are. Yeah, definitely appreciate those insights. And I think it's easy like as an individual to feel small and feel like your actions don't matter. But when you put it into this grander picture of what changing behavior at a bigger scale, it's definitely easier to see the impact that you can have. There are some things that really don't matter and you should forgive yourself for those things. Like not using a plastic straw is good 
for the ocean and for turtles and for like sea life, it's really great. But if you're thinking about the climate crisis, it basically doesn't matter. It's way more important if you have milk in your coffee. It's about 20 times more important if you have milk in your coffee than if you have that coffee in a disposable cup or in a or using a, a plastic straw. Um, and then, so there's some things that we try to, basically that's that's kind of the concept of a carbon intuition is, is it being able to know there's some, I can't do everything. I have limited brain capacity. I can't change every single choice that I'm making in my life, um, but I can focus on a few things that will matter if I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely appreciate the framework of trying to change the way that people think about their consumption habits. And I'll try and keep some of those tips in mind for myself as well. Uh, before we wrap up, wanted to get a chance to get to know you more even outside of your career. So would you be down to do a quick fire round? Yes, for sure. Okay, first question. What is your favorite hobby? How do you unwind? I really love painting and drawing, but I almost never do it. <laughs> I'm one of those like hobbyist painters and drawers who wishes I did it more. Uh, but when I do, it really helps me relax. That's an awesome hobby. Next question is, what is the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I ever received is from my grandfather. And he always says that fear, you can replace fear with curiosity. And basically, the only things that are scary are things you don't know how to do yet. So when you replace fear with curiosity, then you can do things you never imagined you could do. I love that. It's basically like growth mindset, trying to always be learning uh, no matter what you're doing. That brings us to our next question. What is your biggest life hack? I learned this one from my cousin is to not have folders in your email inbox because they it creates cognitive load for you to file things away in folders and you never use them again. So just archive everything and then use the search bar. That's incredible advice. I'm going to use that and get to inbox zero. And lastly, what is your favorite book? I feel like the books that I've read the most, this is really lame, but is Harry Potter. I love Harry Potter so much. And it's really wonderful to have like a favorite, like book that you read when you were in middle school or high school that just made everything seem magical. And to be able to return to that sometimes when it doesn't feel like that anymore. That's beautiful. I also love Harry Potter, so definitely relate. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us, Sanchali. It has been a pleasure to learn from you. Uh, if there's any social media or content that you'd like to plug, this is your chance to let our listeners know where they can find you. You can follow Joro at Joro app on Instagram, Twitter, and you can follow me at Sanchali Paul on Twitter too. Um, send us ideas and thoughts and download the app. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Tech and Color. If you're interested in following our journey and hearing from more leaders in tech and business, follow us on Instagram at Tech and Color Podcast, on Twitter at Tech and Color Cast, and on Spotify. We love to hear from listeners like you. So please reach out if you'd like to work with us.